Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. My name is Maya Ferdman. I'm the Assistant Director at the Luskin Center. The goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest this week is Robin Toma, the Executive Director of the Human Relations Commission of Los Angeles County. The LA County Human Relations Commission, or HRC, is a government body appointed by the Board of Supervisors. Since its initial establishment in 1944, it has worked to develop programs that proactively address racism, homophobia, religious prejudice, and other divisive attitudes that lead to intercultural tension, hate crime, and violence. Robin has been with the county HRC since 1995 and was appointed executive director in 2000. He's an expert human relations practitioner, having advised and published writings on topics such as racialized gang violence, educational equity, and intergroup tension in the workplace, among many other topics. He's the president of the International Association of Official Human Rights Agencies and has been a senior fellow at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs since 2009. I also learned that he's a proud Bruin uh, as well. Uh, Prior to his role at the county, he worked as a staff attorney with the ACLU. Welcome, Robin. We're so happy to have you. Thank you, Maya. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. So this year, it's needless to say, it's been historic for many reasons, from a pandemic to the protests we saw over the summer about racial injustice to the national election. And we're coming to a close now this historic year. But one thing that also made it historic is that we've seen an increase in hate. Um, an increase in this includes increases in anti-Asian attacks, a spike in violence against the transgender community, increases in anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim rhetoric, and increasingly emboldened white supremacist activity. The HRC is dedicated to curbing this trend. Since 1980, it has produced an annual report of hate crimes in LA County, which compiles data gathered from law enforcement agencies, schools, and community-based organizations. You recently released the 2019 report just a few months ago, um, which we hope to hear about soon. Uh, And we're also recording this episode, it's December 2nd today, uh, during the first United Against Hate Week here in LA County, which I know is part of your new uh, countywide LA versus hate initiative, which I also hope we'll have a chance to discuss at length. But before delving into these uh, present day efforts, it will be helpful for us, you know, it's then and now to understand how our definition and measurements of hate, of this idea of hate, have developed over time. So can we start, Robin, do you mind sharing a little bit about when did when did the term hate crime become a legal term? And can you define it for us? Sure. So is, what's really interesting about this is that there's no question that um, the actual uh, crimes of hate Um, as we understand them today, are things that have happened throughout human history. But it wasn't really until the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust and the human rights movement that developed after it that um, it began to be more codified. Uh, However, uh, the words hate crime, the term hate crime, didn't really even appear then. 
it was through the uh, work of civil rights organizations and the movement to really uh, see the kind of human rights that we championed in World War II to become reality here in the United States that really started to, I think, um, address some of the blatant discrimination and the horrible hate violence that was happening throughout uh, U.S. history. And so it's kind of uh, curious to to recognize that it's only really been in this uh, recent 50, 60 years that the awareness of uh, what we call hate crime and having specific legal definitions and specific punishments for it has really been emerging. Um, We were early uh, in terms of collecting hate crime data, but uh, we know that one of the issues has been, of course, the juxtaposition of free speech rights uh, and hate crime. And so one of the issues that has happened uh, even during my tenure as an ACLU attorney was the uh, question nationally, the debate nationally about whether hate crime laws violated free speech laws Mm -hmm. and protections. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was a um, important uh, discussion where it made uh, clear that uh, hate crime laws uh, are respectful in the sense that they're not punishing speech, they're punishing the crimes and violence that are motivated by uh, by prejudice and bigotry. And so it distinguishes itself. You know, you're free to say whatever bigoted thing you want, but you cannot do that uh, hurting another person uh, or, you know, um, destroying property uh, aimed at hurting somebody. So all of those things are, I think, uh, got defined and clarified so that we have now, I think, uh, clarity about hate crimes being um, acts of violence or crimes that are, motivated in part or wholly by bias or prejudice uh, based on a person's protected characteristics. Um, but yeah, it's it's really quite uh, amazing that even today, we still have uh, several states of this uh, country that do not have laws that uh, increase penalties for hate crime. Uh, Arkansas, Georgia, South Carolina, Wyoming, um, and even our federal uh, laws really uh, were kind of slow in developing around hate crimes. 1968, uh, President uh, Lyndon Johnson signed the first federal law that addressed um, discrimination in, uh, you know, arenas of uh, public life, employment, housing, um, education, public education, uh, travel. Um, But it was really... um, it wasn't until 1990 that the uh, FBI actually collected the data. And you, as we all know, if you don't uh, try to collect the data, then you may as well not even have it because people, of course, didn't uh, even to this day, aren't turning in uh, data from local police departments about hate crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it was really wasn't until 1996 and 2009 where we had, uh, we added other key protections. It wasn't just race, color, ethnicity, national origin, religion, but we added uh, such things as gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. uh, disability, and family status. Um, so that's been really, uh, we think about it quite recent, in the last 10, 15 years, where we've had something beyond race, uh, color, national origin, and religion. Mm-hmm. And those th- those changes, those evolutions have happened at a federal at a federal level or have they also, have they happened at state levels at varying degrees of speed? Yes. Uh, yes. As you can imagine, 
given the diversity of our state's uh, political uh, leanings and attitudes, um, some, you know, most of the states that have hate crime laws, or I should say many of them, don't go beyond race, uh, national origin, uh, religion. They don't uh, necessarily address sexual orientation and gender, gender identity. Those are frontier areas still within many states. California is way ahead and has always been, I think, ahead of the curve on this, um, maybe because of the fact that we have been a much more uh, demographically diverse state and uh, one in which you know we've been a bellwether state in terms of um, really uh, moving forward on social issues in a way that other states you know hadn't even thought about. But um, it, it is uh, something that really, if you look at the, the, the arc of human history, um, we're really still in the infancy of the um, development of all of this. Uh, and we have a long ways to go to really get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's interesting that there was this period between, you said, Lyndon Johnson signing those first protections into law back in 1968 and then in 1990, when the FBI started collecting data about hate crimes nationally, what happened in that period? What can you tell us about what happened in that period? Was it being enforced, these kinds of protections, or was it more blurry and people didn't really know how to even approach this this law? Yeah, I, I think that it was fairly, you know, we have a very um, disconnected uh, system of justice in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very decentralized to the point that we have, you know, over uh, thousands of different police agencies that all have their own policies and they're not required to have policies in alignment with the federal government. The only way the federal government can ensure that is by um, addressing when there's a pattern and practice of of discrimination or uh, behavior that violates basic civil rights. Uh, federal civil rights laws. Otherwise, it, it really relies upon the local governing bodies, mayors, city councils, county boards, to um, or the sheriffs, right, to enact the policies that uh, would, you know, reflect sort of a, an, um, a higher uh, level of respect for uh, people who are minorities, whether sexual minorities, religious minorities, racial minorities. Um, and so, it, it, I think that uh, what we uh, need to recognize is that even though we have these uh, federal laws, which are clear that uh, people uh, who have a different sexual orientation than the majority should not be fired because of that and shouldn't be attacked because of it, um, that that is not necessarily a part of local laws. And the federal government doesn't really have the capacity to enforce that throughout the country. So that's an area where really we have to rely upon state and local entities to um, to really advance that. Uh, other countries, you know, I've had visits from other countries, well, they are fascinated by the fact that, you know, in the UK and China, they'll say, if you know, we have a policy and it is throughout the country. Mm-hmm. That there's a policy around, say, policing and use of force. It's throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And it is not through, you don't have to require the courts to, uh, to to impose a consent decree to enforce it, it's enforced by administrative and executive power that, that runs from the top, right? And they can't believe that we have a country where essentially here in LA County, just LA County, we could have a perspective about as a county of what the policy should be, but that doesn't change what 
you know, a given city police department is going to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't automatically change. It has to be enforced through the courts and it has to be volative of federal or state law or, you know, counties actually don't have the ability to impose a, um, a policy on local police departments. That's going to be up to the mayor and the city council. Um, and it'll be, of course, a violent state law, but it really is a um, intensely decentralized system. So it makes it hard to, to really ensure that um, we have a uniform approach that reflects, I think, what uh, would be um, common values and ideals about what we should uh, care about in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you make an interesting point that it's not a uniform approach. It's it's a decentralized approach, both legally and also ideologically, uh, that there's this incredible amount of political and ideological diversity among approaches and definitions of uh, of hate um, that you know, we've seen even recently that there's there's religious liberties to think about and freedom of speech to think about and different states land in different places as to how they prioritize that those, you know, those rights with uh, the right to be protected against hate. Um, and so it's it's an, definitely a, a challenge. I'm wondering, the um, you mentioned, so in 1990, the FBI began collecting hate crime data, and you mentioned a little bit about benefits, but can you tell us more what does that do then in the face, in the context of this decentralization? What is the benefit of the federal government collecting this data? And then what's the limitation of that data collection at the national level? And then we can talk about the local. Sure. So, you know, I think that the main benefit is that by uh, having the FBI send a request every year that's uh, based on a mandate by the federal government that uh, every local law enforcement agency submit its data. Um, it's telling them, it's reminding them that this matters to us, that we care about whether or not hate crime laws are being enforced and what your hate crime enforcement looks like. Um, At the same time, what I will tell you is that if you look at that report every year, there are lots of zeros in places that you just can't imagine. Really, there's no hate crime happening in this entire jurisdiction or this entire state. Um, And that's the the truth, that there is in some way still... It doesn't mean that enforcement is being uh, addressed and pushed uh, vigorously. Um, so that's, and I, so I think that's a real limitation. And remember, the federal government's uh, jurisdiction over hate crimes is itself limited. Uh, they expanded it with the Matthew Bird, uh, um, uh, Matthew Shepard, James Bird Hate Crimes Act, which finally uh, expanded it to uh, to homophobia uh, and. Um, transphobia and other forms of, um, and, and just anti-women uh, hate crimes, that all happened uh, only uh, within the last, you know, 20 years, but the, um, or actually the last 10 years. But what's happening is that um, the limitation is that people simply, A, people don't report unless it's clear to them that, you know, um, this is something, uh, a law that they're educated about and they know to push it. And B, when they do report it, it may not get reported as such by the police department. They may de- deem it not to be a hate crime. And so at those two levels, what ends up happening is um, study after study by the Justice Department has shown that uh, there are twice as many hate crimes that are committed that are actually uh, arriving to them in that annual data report, um, at least one, uh, twice as many. Nash- and they do this, 
Yeah, they, they actually do uh, thousands of phone calls to people around the country and uh, each year, and, and it's called the Annual Crime Victimization Survey. And through that, they realize that um, there are twice as many hate crimes that are actually committed than are actually coming to the FBI. So we know that's a real limitation. And, um, and the other, of course, the other part of the, the limitation is the fact that, as we talked about, um, so many types of hate crimes that we would consider clearly hate crime here in California, uh, ones based on um, uh, anti-gay hate crime, anti-trans you know, hate crime, anti-women hate crime, are not necessarily part of the hate crime laws in many states. So they're not going to be reported. Okay. And so here in LA, um, you know, you're saying the federal government even began, even this, uh, what sounds like a piecemeal or a, a best effort for the moment, uh, kind of um, data collection started in the 1990s at the federal level, but LA County started a decade prior. Um, so what can you tell us about the work of the HRC in the 80s and 90s before your tenure or at the start of your tenure as it relates to hate and hate crimes to make it sort of preempt the federal government in this way? Well, yeah, we were actually ahead of the state government in that sense, because California, of course, has been a leader in it. And since 1990, California has required that the uh, police departments in the state of California report to the state attorney general. Um, and so... Um, you know, we were uh, collecting that data in 1980, and it was purely on a voluntary basis through our work with all the different, you know, we have 46 different police uh, agencies, and we probably have more than because the sheriff's department takes on and contracts with a bunch of cities to do their policing. But in those days, um, you know, it was less. And so we had uh, so many different agencies that we had to work out ag agreements for them to share with us their hate crimes data. But we... Um, I think we recognize that, you know, hate crimes are incredibly powerful events, but they can be because it's um, it's not just uh, targeting one individual, but it's the entire community that feels that fear that they're that they're being targeted because of their race, because of their their religion, because of their sexual orientation, and so it it has the kind of impact that is much wider than than other kinds of crimes, and as a result, um, you know, I think that there was. Uh, the need to uh, acknowledge that by collecting that data and analyzing it, it seemed, you know, you're we're talking about human relations and we're talking about a uh, commission that grew out of what would, what would be called racial violence, which is the Zutsu riots, where Latino uh, and other men of color wearing Zutsus were being targeted out of racial hostility and uh, xenophobic hostility by mostly white uh, military um, uh, uh, folks that are on leave. Um, and that went on for days in L.A. County. And so that uh, beginning, I think, uh, in, you know, is a very important influence as to why the commission exists. And of course, how can you not pay attention to the most serious thing, which is hate violence, right? That's happening in our county. But what we did is that in, um, uh, in the 80s, uh, in addition to starting the annual report, we started what's called a network against hate crime. And that was uh, probably one of the first efforts anywhere to bring together police agencies with civil rights organizations on the goal of um, uh, addressing hate crime. And uh, that has you know, lasted to this day. And it's a uh, important way that we can find that common ground between um, civil rights advocates and uh, other public officials and police agencies to really work together on addressing hate crime. So um, that, that I think is a really important thing. And 
Um, you know, we also started to notice that um, in the 90s uh, that uh, young people were showing up as being prosecuted in large, uh, in a large percentage by the DA for felony hate crimes. And uh, so we decided, decided to turn our, uh, our focus to young people and understand where it was coming from. And so we did two things. We started organizing and doing a lot of youth education work and youth leadership development work. But we also started looking at uh, racialized gang violence. Um, and so that became clear in the 90s that, unfortunately, um, gangs, which grew and are so famously known here in L.A. County, um, that there was a percentage of them, a small percentage, but still a percentage of them that were ver- that were engaged in racialized violence. Something that began as being maybe a, a dispute over drugs or drug theft became racialized. It became a war that wasn't just between two gangs of different uh, races and ethnicities, but it became uh, targeting any one of those races in those communities. And so that has been a feature that we've looked at along with white supremacist engagement and involvement in, uh, in symbols and hate crime, as well as anti-immigrant remarks and hate crime, something that um, the national and state reports don't don't look at, but we think are important to understand uh, what's happening in LA County. So it sounds like you're saying that in Los Angeles, um, there's a particular awareness of the kind of inner inner group um, interaction and a and a desire to foster an inner group a positive uh, inner group relations um, because there's a recognition of the there's a recognition that that. Hate, how harmful hate can be to everybody or to a society in general. You know, I think I think you're hitting on something there in the sense that you know what was happening throughout the 60s and 70s is you saw the um, the population of LA County grow, but not just grow in numbers, but grow in diversity. And so you start to get the, the sort of a critical mass of different communities enough so that when hate happened there was a large number of people and organizations that felt it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, made it a higher party than places where, unfortunately, it might be less diverse. And therefore, those targeted, it would be much less, you know, um, there was less likelihood without such an organized um, community organizations and, and civil of uh, society voices that you would have the kind of advocacy and concern around this issue. Mm. Remember, we're we're in population. LA County is larger than forty-one states of this country, so it is an immense jurisdiction, and we have the kind of diversity that is um, unmatched, you know, by most uh, jurisdictions. And so, therefore, we just have very significant populations and communities from all over the world, and representing a whole diversity of cultures. And as a result, I think that um, maybe they're more empowered to to really speak up when these things happen. And I think that's been uh, one of the things that I think has been part of that. And I think also just the uh, the mandate of the commission um, and its history uh, helped it to be uh, aware of that and being connected to different communities, being connected to um, housing and employment discrimination, but also just the community uh, and recognizing that this is something that uh, needed to be paid attention to. So why don't we move to a little bit about the hate crimes report itself uh, and just some of the, without diving too deeply because people can, uh, can find the report online and I can, uh, we can make sure to put that uh, in the description of this episode. 
But can you tell us some of the sort of top line findings in the 2019 report and maybe how they fit in with the overarching trends of hate over the last 20 years? Sure. So um, in 2019, which is the the complete calendar year, the most recent one, we um, found, unfortunately, that uh, the level of hate crimes in L.A. County remained high. Even though the increase was very small from the previous year, it's the highest point since 2009. So over 10 years. Um, Now, at the same time, it's important if you look at the whole arc of the past several decades, is that we're still far below the level, the peak of hate crimes reported in L.A. County that was in 2001, Mm -hmm. 9-11, right, where there was over uh, a thousand hate crimes Mm -hmm. reported, right? And always taking account that you're underreported, the fact that there was this that we've been going in the wrong direction for six consecutive years, that we've been on the rise, um, was something of, you know, that's continuing in 2019. And, you know, we know it is um, going to be a challenge to reverse that because, you know, I think that the past four years has really unleashed um, and emboldened uh, forces of bigotry that I think are um, helping to, to fuel some of it. And to give permission to those, or at least encourage, even encourage those that may be, you know, less hardened in ideology, but just, you know, with the uh, the biases that they grew up with, or that they frustrations they're feeling to to um, express those in in targeting others. So that is uh, evident in some of the um, other stats that we found. For example, we reached the highest rate of violence uh, in hate crimes in LA County. Uh, that we've seen in, in in a long time. We've also seen the uh, 38% in anti uh, in hate crime that is white supremacist influenced, right? that has uh, symbols of white supremacist ideology. We saw increases in anti-Asian, uh, in anti-Jewish uh, and anti-Muslim hate crime. Um, we saw increases in anti uh, um, anti-immigrant hate crime. So some of these things that you would expect to see uh, were definitely there. We did see some welcome drops, though, in anti-Black hate crime, anti-Latino hate crime generally, which uh, was surprising. But it actually, I think, reflects that there has been a lot of progress made around gang prevention intervention work. And so um, that, uh, that work meant that there could be quick intervention when these things started to to develop between gangs and uh, and communities, and could be addressed early on, of course, the COVID nineteen um, impact hadn't isn't in the twenty nineteen numbers. We're seeing that, however, through our uh, data that we collect through two one one in our current LA versus hate initiative and our new system that we've built to capture more than just hate crimes, but acts of hate more broadly. And, um, you know, so it's interesting that the anti-Asian hate crime already was increasing or is increasing in 2019 pre-COVID. Um, and uh, we're, you know, trying to understand where that comes from. And one of the potential sources of that is just the rise in sort of anti-China um, sentiment through because of the trade wars, because of, you know, um, just the politics around that. And, and unfortunately, how that is translated to um, uh, increased hostility and targeting of Asian Americans potentially. But I would say at the same time, we're very hopeful with the election that um, there is a change with the change in national leadership and um, the what that can bring in terms of a shift in, in tone and messages 
coming from the you know very highest uh, leadership levels of our country. So we think that's going to be a positive influence to build on, and um, we're certainly doing what we can to bring people together through our LA versus Hate initiative, which you know that is the goal. You know we need to just we know that the majority of us are against hate crime and, and acts of hate and hostility. And we just need to help people to express it, to show it, to report it, to join in efforts uh, and be encouraged to speak up and report. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I want to touch on the LA versus hate initiative, and, but I want to rewind first to address something you brought up earlier, which is this distinction between hate crime and acts of hatred that are not necessarily considered criminal. Uh, under the law. Um, and can you tell us, how do you, I mean, can you speak to that differentiation a bit? Like we see, we've seen an increase in hateful rhetoric. Um, we've seen, you know, there's bullying, there's the videos that you see online of people yelling and saying profane things to each other. How do you differentiate that as a government body? Um, and how do you develop innovative responses to uh to those kinds of incidences that might not have a criminal uh, element to them. Right. And I think this is so important because the question you raise is that, you know, we made a very conscious decision that um, we just didn't want to hear about hate crime because we know that um, those are, there are a lot of barriers to that being reported. First of all, from communities that are targeted, very often there is reluctance to go to the police uh, for a variety of reasons, for fear of retaliation, for fear of, of, public exposure for fear of, of, you know, not trusting the police because of their experiences in here or their home countries. Uh, for, so for immigrants, for, for the gay lesbian community, for um, other minorities, it's, it's, um, there are reasons why they don't go to the police. So we recognize that that's a barrier. And by creating something that is broader than just hate crime, we're also not requiring people to figure it out, whether a given act is a crime or not. Um, but we distinguish because obviously if it isn't, there isn't an underlying crime that's being alleged, then that means it can't be something that's called a hate crime. However, what became clear to us is that when you have an act of bias motivated hostility, when you have somebody who is expressing anger and aggression uh, towards somebody, telling them to go home, go to your, go back to your country, go back to where you came from or die, you know, these things that are just statements of anger and hostility that are fueled by prejudice, those are it can be not only as harmful, they can be more harmful than certain kinds of hate crimes. Honestly, you know, when you compare it to say, finding a, some kind of uh, epithet on, you know, written on your car, you know, um, perhaps in, in something that's easily removable, well, that might still be, you know, a kind of vandalism that's hate motivated, but it's different than somebody face to face is yelling at you, right? And, and spewing this hatred and hostility. We recognize that um, when those things happen, acts of hate and hostility, we want to know about that because they could be precursors to hate crime. They could they damage people and you can do something about it. And this is really important. It's not like if, if it's not a crime, nothing can be done. There are civil rights laws in our state that are underutilized where you can uh, get the help of, of state government agencies to, to move forward civil actions. Uh, there is... Um, community organizations and city governments that can back you up and help you address the act of hate and set a tone in response to that to make sure that those kinds of things don't go unaddressed. And in fact, there's sort of a tacit allowance that that's okay if nothing is done about it. Um, And these acts, uh, which communities have done for years in speaking out against acts of hate, 
whether they're crimes or not, really is important to send a message that those who are acting in that way, it's not okay. And we as a community are going to let you know that. We're not going to, you know, we can't prosecute you if it's not a crime, but you're going to hear and see that the vast majority of people in these communities do not accept that as okay. Mm -hmm. And this pushback against the normalization of hate, Mm -hmm. which is really what we have seen in the past several years, is so important to get us to a place, back to a place where I think we are, uh, or maybe it's not fair to say back to a place in some cases, but the idea that we need to reestablish and and make clear and expand the norm of respectful uh, uh, behavior uh, towards one another. And, um, and, you know, truly uh, being empathetic and and compassionate and uh, supporting those who are being targeted, even if it's not your own group, that kind of cross group solidarity is one we want to encourage. And um, we believe that, you know, this doesn't infringe on free speech in the sense that if somebody is just expressing an opinion that may be bigoted, you know, that's not the kind of thing we're going to act on. If people are traumatized by it, we're going to help them. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter. You know, we're going to offer help to anyone, everyone we can and we and for free uh, through our system. But it's when it is um, fueled by hostility and or it's a policy that is fueling this or supporting it or allowing it to happen that we want to be able to take action. And that action can be you know, just as much done by, by civil rights protections or simply the sense of moral obligation and community pressure on a uh, store or on a school or on a workplace or on a business that they need to change their practices to discourage it. Mm-hmm. So I think this is what's really ambitious about what we're doing is we're really trying to cast a much wider net. We know there are so many times more hate incidents happening than hate crimes. Um, understandably, and that, um, you know, we don't want people to simply accept it as and throw their hands up and say, what are we going to do? You know, people are going to be who they are. No, we want to engage. We want to change that behavior. And the only way we can do that is to know where it's coming from. So it needs to be reported and we need to, to together act on yeah. it. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're trying to cast in casting this wider net. It's almost more accurately taking the pulse or taking the temperature of the state of relations uh, between different groups, um, which is vital. One question, though, um, which is, I think, speaks to the ambition of of this effort and also the challenges is, you know, we started by talking about that decentralization and that that difference in the ideological difference in what constitutes even a hate crime. Um, What do you do when you're confronted with a difference in what is considered a hateful incident? Um, and how do you, as a government body, um, manage that that definition in a way that is in, that is uh, both meeting your mandate um, and also avoid some of that cancel culture that we're seeing um, in you know getting to you know to the other side of things that some might be uh, resistant to. Yeah, no, those are really uh, good questions. Um, so one of the ways that I think that we wa- uh, are trying to make sure that um, we are addressing this without getting bogged down in technicalities is that when we invite people to report hate to 211, and we try to make it as easy as possible, just dialing 211 or going to the, to the website, um, that when they do that, we're not asking them to figure it out. Mm-hmm. We want them to tell us their incident, and we're going to offer, as I said, help for whatever they need that can address whatever trauma they feel or whatever remedies that are available, whether they're civil or criminal remedies. Um, 
And we're going to link them to community if the community is, can support them and help them. Mm-hmm. To community-based organizations and services. Right. Exactly. Now, whether we count, you know, when we start talking about counting, um, we're going to be careful to count those things which are, in fact, bias-motivated. Um, because uh, if they're not bias-motivated uh, and they're not acts of hostility, then we're really um, talking about tracking things that are, you know, f- protected by free speech. Um, and, and, and things that are honestly um, not intended to cause harm, right? So we want to really focus on those which there is clearly an intent. There is that, that aggression, that hostility, that anger, uh, and it's coupled with prejudice against a person's protected characteristics. And as I said, we know what it leads to is not um, anything that's going to infringe on, on the rights of those who are doing it, um, unless they're committing hate crimes, or they're violating civil rights laws. Um, but we're going to make sure that there's something is done about it. Uh, something that shows a collective that the, the community and the government cares and that we don't want this to continue. Now, your question about the cancel culture, I think that is a really important one because I think what we want to also um, be clear about in our work is how do we respond to this? Do we respond to this by um, shouting down and and beating back and threatening and, and, and making the person who said it feel like they better run and hide because, you know, they're going to get it next. Um, no, we want, we want there to be, of course, the end to whatever's happening. So number one, we want to end the harassment end the act of hate, stop that from happening, but we don't want to do it through uh, the same kind of behavior that we're uh, concerned with. We don't want it to become a, a threat of violence against that person. We want it to be, um, a very thoughtful approach that is going to at least open the possibility for engagement. What we've learned over the history of this work is that people do not open up to changing, honestly, if they feel threatened, if they feel that they have to defend themselves from attack. Um, what changes even white supremacists, um, you know, I, I've learned through these stories by these folks who have worked with white supremacists and this one man who has engaged with all these clans leaders throughout the country and gotten them to give up the clan. And he has a whole collection of clans robes uh, in, in his, uh, um, in his possession. And he does it through music. He connects them through music and through the, the humanization of that relationship, they realize their racial hatred is, doesn't make any sense. And I think that that's, you know, we need to think about um, not the, the, um, not simply just shutting people down, but about how we reach the other side, because there are a lot of people on the other side. And we have to recognize that with as many people voted for uh, in the presidential elections and how they voted, that there are a lot of people that need to be reached and can be reached. And so this is an approach where we can also talk about how we approach people with compassion, with empathy, with understanding, with love, with questions instead of accusations. So asking people like, why, why do you think that? Where does that come from? And build relationships really that are gonna to help to change uh, the way they think. We're looking at alternative approaches to addressing hate, low-level hate crime offenders because we don't want simply people to be incarcerated or prosecuted to the hilt. That is not really helpful when we look at uh, what happens in our jails and prisons. We want people to actually have experiences that are going to be transformative. We want transformative justice. We want restorative approaches used because we know that's going to be way more effective in changing the outcome than simply sending them to a place where, in fact, they can 
have hardened alliances that are in, around purely racial identities and racial animosities. So this is, um, I think, the um, where we need to move towards as a society. And what we're doing through our work is identifying more of those people, not waiting until they're, they're actually accused of a hate crime, but when they're even acting out in ways which are clearly um, damaging to uh, individual and to a community, um, getting them at that point so we can actually start to change the way people uh, respond. Simply telling people they can't do it is not an effective solution. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, the same way the HRC was uh, spearheading uh, these approaches, these innovative approaches back in the 80s. Um, hopefully this is this provides a model um, for the direction of the country in my in my personal opinion. Um, for how for how local municipalities and counties and and states can can begin to approach this kind of rhetoric and this kind of uh, state that we find ourselves in. So thank you for the work that you're doing. One final uh, closing question. First, tell us where people can learn more about LA versus Hate if they want to to learn about your efforts. And then also, can you tell us in brief what is your hope for the future and what can we learn from the past? So not a small question, but I'm going to try my best in the short time we have to, to speak to that. So first of all, LA versus hate, you can go to LA versus hate.org and you can learn all about it. You can download some really great, uh, just a whole variety of, of uh, art uh, that with a message that uh, reflects a whole different, you know, the diversity of identities and cultures that live here in LA County. Uh, and I really want to uh, urge that through that, you're going to learn about United Against Hate Week, which is happening now. And you can also um, figure out how to report hate. It's all there uh, through that website. Um, in terms of our hope for the future and what we can learn from the past, um, you know, I really believe that um, my hope is that we can really integrate the skills and knowledge that uh, we have developed around intergroup relations and human relations um, to an increasing degree in our uh, educational systems, in our uh, adult training and education programs. Um, because I think that, you know, we've started moving in that direction with social and emotional learning and ethnic studies, but we're not there yet. That needs to be really um, a key avenue to institutionalize those things so that we can evolve, continue to, you know, become better as human beings in, um, in, in you know, really connecting to each other when we have differences. Another part of that is uh, how we as society deal with hate, as I've talked about in a way that is beyond punitive, which is what we've been doing till now. I think we really need to expand the arena of uh, developing the whole arena of alternative sentencing approaches uh, and alternative uh, justice approaches, transformative justice approaches that, that um, help to really change people's experiences and understanding so that changes their heart, not just, you know, uh, subjects them to um, the deprivation of freedom as a, as a way to change their approach. And um, I think that, you know, my greatest hope is that we don't lose hope. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think of myself as my hope is standing on top of the shoulders of, of reality and, um, and belief that um, the the good in all of us will prevail over uh, the not so good. And I think that that, you know, when we have to maintain that hope, even in some of the darkest times, and we've kind of come out of some very dark times. And I think that uh, we have some, you know, hard times ahead, but I think that uh, that 
um, unrelenting uh, hope is really key for all of us to uh, have the the will to to do what's needed to to move us forward. And learning from the past, I think you know, I would say the, the things that are are so important is to uh, really appreciate how um, how far we've come in a relatively short time. I mean, we you know, um, I think that sometimes by focusing and we're so aware of all the shortcomings of where we are now that we can be very uh, mired in all the uh, things that are yet uh, to be done and all the the violations of human rights and the disrespect that people endure and the the horrible treatment that entire communities are put through formal policies, you know, and practices. Um, But also knowing that, um, you know, the arc of history truly does bend towards justice. Uh, as Martin Luther King said, and uh, we have to help it bend. It doesn't happen by itself. Um, and in fact, it's really community activism that has driven so many of the changes. We can't be passive. We have to, you know, um, um, do something, rather something big or small, but do something to contribute to the kind of changes we need. And uh, I think sometimes we're daunted by how big the task is, but breaking in small pieces, just to a small action. Go on to our Ellie versus Hate website, go on to United Against Hate, download um, the uh, the little placard that we have that, that lets you write why you were United Against Hate, post it, share it, um, promote 211. I want everyone in this county to know that 211 is the place to go along with our website to report hate. We have to get to a place where we're not just accepting hate as just something we have to live with, but something that we can do something about. Right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Then and Now. Um, We are really grateful to have you, Robin. Thanks for having me, Maya. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing. Thanks. Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Then and Now can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you to our director, David Myers, and to our guest today, Robin Toma, for joining us. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. Thanks so much and see you next time. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.